you. Let us pray. Our dear Lord, on this Palm Sunday, we are just grateful for our King. Grateful uh, for your humility. Grateful for your um, just for your sacrifice of yourself, so that we might know you. Um, and and today on this Palm Sunday, as we contemplate the resurrection, which might seem strange, we just I just pray that you would give us something to contemplate and look forward to uh, in this week. That it would not tempt us to jump past the Last Supper the garden, the cross, uh, but would give us glorious anticipation and more meaningful movement uh, through this Holy Week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I kind of just prayed the, um, the first part of what I want to say, and that is, um, is that it, it, is, it probably feels unusual to be looking uh, today at the resurrection. It's where we are in Matthew and uh, I, I just feel this enormous, sort of anticipatory, enormous sense of accomplishment. If you have been with us for the last year and a half going through uh, Matthew, uh, it is, I, I just, somebody said, man, that is a long time for one book. And, and maybe, but like, I, it is, for me personally, it, is, it has been rich. So I hope it has uh, for you uh, as well. Uh, it is unusual, I think, to be studying the resurrection on Palm Sunday uh, as we head into the week of the Passion. It uh, might seem a little premature or maybe way overdue for after a year and a half, but, um, but I just hope that it does give you something to ponder uh, as we move through this Holy Week. I always, always, always encourage us, please don't just jump to the resurrection. Uh, please let us see you on Thursday. And go through the Last Supper and the foot washing and the stripping of the altar, and Good Friday, and the um, and the cross, and sort of the sadness uh, and the holiness of that day, and then we get to the resurrection. Uh, but but today, what I want to talk about, um, and I'll probably say a lot of this in, in the sermon. I mean, you, you know, you can only there's only so many things to say about the same passage over and over and over and over again. But we can't say it enough, and so I'll probably say a lot of the same stuff uh, in the in the sermon. But uh, next week, but um, two weeks ago, we looked at the crucifixion, uh, and and last week we looked at, at Jesus' actual death on the cross and his burial. Um, and so that was, that was Friday, uh, the first day, and then there was uh, Sabbath began at sunset, and then, the, um, and then uh, Sabbath went through sunset the next day, the set Saturday, that was the second day, and the third day begins at sunset on Saturday. That's just how, I think it's kind of a neat way to think about your day, that it begins with night, not with day. Um, their day began at night and with rest. And so rest came first, and then came activity, and then the sunset, and it was time for the new day, which began with rest, which is a neat way to look at it. But the Sabbath began, the Sabbath was over, I mean, at sunset. And so as we move towards Easter Sunday, and pastel and, and, um, and pastel colors and Easter bonnets and, and Easter eggs and seersucker... 
always excited about seersucker. Um, the, um, just hope that you'll think about this. I want to talk about why Easter is the linchpin. And, um, and I want to talk about why you can trust the resurrection. Now, maybe you don't ever have anything to, you know, it's always the linchpin for you. Maybe that's fine. But let's just talk about why it's the linchpin, and then we'll talk about why you can trust the resurrection. Now, verse 1, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which was, again, the third day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. I mean, there's got to be the most joyful words in all of history. He's not here. He rose just like he told you he would. Um, See, I have told you. In other words, I proclaimed it. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, of course, and great joy, of course, and they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So, what do you? Uh, so, when you read that, I mean, what, what you just give me just a, a few words, a quick sentence, not a theological dissertation. Just a what do you? When you read the resurrection, what do you get from it? What do you? Miraculous. Miraculous yes. Joy. Yes. End of doubt. Yeah, confirmation. Confirmation. End of doubt. Is that what you said? Yeah. Security. Security, yes. I love that. I love that. Why do you why do let me ask, why do you say security? What what is because it's true? Yes. Because it's true. Let me say that we're all um, fools if it's not true. Um you, you should be uh, at home sleeping uh, if it's not true. The resurrection has to have happened for the rest of Christianity to have any credibility or any worth. It's the linchpin. It's the resurrection. If Jesus died on the cross but didn't rise from the dead, it's just an asterisk, a sad asterisk in history. And when people say that all religions are the same, they don't understand this. They don't, they're not taking this into account. What they are, um, that statement, that all religions are the same, thinks that the point of Christianity is to get people to be nice and to curb selfish behavior. And you should be nice and you should curb selfish behavior and that has nothing to do with Christianity. It, now, it is a good and, and noble and worthy response. Because, um, but it is a response that is out of gratitude and in reflection of the character of God who gave Himself up for us, it is not so God will love us. 
Um, Christianity is, at its core, God's invitation into a relationship with Himself, which He made possible because He crossed the gap from His holiness to our unholiness uh, that we could not cross, and He did that by taking on by incarnation and then taking on the death that we deserved and defeated it. So it is. Um, that's why it's, Christianity is not good advice, right? It's good news. Um, there's a lot of good advice. But um, let me just say that, uh, too, that without the resurrection, the, the Bible crumbles without the resurrection. The New Testament crumbles without the resurrection because it was written on the assumption of a resurrected Savior. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, then Judaism would have continued. And people might have thought, oh, we, you know, we particularly like that one preacher who healed those folks and you know but remember you know he kind of challenged the way we look at the law um, and we gotta we gotta please God with our good good you know works of the law but the, the New Testament was written under the assumption that Jesus was raised from the dead the Gospels would not have been written for a teacher who promised to be resurrected but wasn't whose story ended when he was crucified. Maybe a historian like Josephus would have said something about it, but what made Jesus remarkable and uh, worthy of these four accounts is the resurrection. The epistles would not have been written without a resurrected Savior because the world did not need another religion or another moral code. The moral code of Christianity is essentially the same as Judaism. I mean, we've got the Ten Commandments, right? Now, we might take it a little further because of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and, and I don't mean to say anything about our Jewish neighbors, that's not what I mean at all, but just our understanding that uh, not just don't murder, but, but um, whoever thinks uh, evil of his brother uh, is worthy of, of death. That, that sort of thing, just taking it a little bit um, to beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Um, we didn't need another religion or a moral code. And the Old Testament, in a sense, crumbles because it's left unfulfilled with the most recent writings being 2,400 years old now. Uh, the most recent of the, of the Old Testament writings. And so, just totally unfulfilled. And, and so, so that's, that's one aspect of how the Bible crumbles. Another is that the, the Gospels, act, you know, they do, as they were written, claim that Jesus was resurrected. Uh, and, and, if, and if He wasn't resurrected, then how do we know what else we can trust? Like, for me anyway, and I, I don't speak for you, but for me, if Jesus was not resurrected and the Bible claims that He was, then that kind of throws out the rest of it. Way more, like, let's, let's just say for instance... Now, I completely believe in the miracles of the gospel. Let's just say, for instance, somehow it was shown that he actually didn't feed 5,000, right? That it was based on some other act, and, or maybe like the little boy brought his lunch and everybody actually did bring their loaf of bread and they shared it around and it was enough, as some people have claimed. Let's just say that. Does that discount Christianity? In my mind, no. I mean, I, I think we need to figure out why the, the evangelist said that he did the miracle. 
And what were they trying to accomplish by that? Take that out, and it does not discredit. But if you take out the resurrection, then you just have a teacher who said something that didn't didn't happen, and that was it. So, um, the um, how do we know what else to trust? It is because that he because he was resurrected that we can can, and because we. Um, let me say this again. Because He was resurrected, we can and we must trust everything that the Word of God tells us. Now, we, um, we need to wrestle with that. We need to understand uh, how those things apply in our uh, current context or are rightly applied in our current context. And not all of us will reach the same conclusions. That does not mean that we don't trust the Word of God. But if he wasn't resurrected, then it's all, it's, it's it, it, to me, anyway, it doesn't matter. And similarly, Jesus tells us that he will be resurrected. And if he was not resurrected, then how do we know what to trust? It's because he prophesied and fulfilled his own resurrection that we can and we must trust Jesus. The re- the, really, the resurrection is the linchpin. You know, there's... Um, there's no reason for us to share the body and blood of a crucified Savior if He was not also resurrected. Um, and, and so, it is, uh, if He was not resurrected, then we, we can, we've got other more important things to do. But if He was resurrected, there's nothing more important than worshiping Him. So, and knowing Him. And, and someone else has said that if, if, um, if He was resurrected then he actually can ask anything of us. Um, so that's, a, that's something to, for us, I think, to ponder. What, what about you? I mean, what is, how, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Adrian. What was the, I did not understand your last line. He didn't ask anything of us, or he did? What? If, if he was resurrected, then he can ask anything of us. Done. Yes. Because it means he's God. Right. Yeah. I just didn't. Yeah. Yes, Alicia. Why, why do you think the word fear is used so many times in this passage? Does it mean the same thing every time? Or does it, I mean, even Christ uses the word, don't be afraid. What, what, are, what is the fear part? So the question is, what, what is the fear part? Because it says that the women were afraid. The guards were afraid. Yeah, well, the women, so... Pardon me? So, pardon, the, um, the women are going because they expect, even though Jesus said, I'm going to be resurrected, they expected a dead body, right? They don't know how they're going to get in. These got these mean guards there. And then there's this earthquake, so they're sad, and they're a little, tre- have some trepidation. And then there's an earthquake. And then there's an a angel. And so all of this is... Um, I would think, unnerving at, at best. This is completely uh, out, outside the ordinary. And if you came to a funeral here at Church of Our Savior, and I said, hey, I've got really good news. Uh, instead of a funeral, let's go over, just go, go ahead to the reception because the guy uh, was um, raised from the dead. You would, first of all, think that is not even sort of funny. And if you did, and if, so let's just say, like you're just sitting there angry at me, and he walks in, you would be, freaked out, right? And you would be so afraid. And so I think that 
there is great joy. I mean, I think Matthew's careful to say there is fear and there's great joy. They don't know what to think. Like, okay, so, and we're going to talk about their, their, maybe they're more primitive scientifically than we are. They know what dead is, right? And they, they know that that's the end. And so um, they, I would think it is, fear is actually a really normal reaction. And it would be therefore normal for um, Jesus and the angel to exhort them. I know this is crazy, but you don't have anything to be afraid of. Sissy. I have a little different take on this that just popped in my mind. We're all told that when we die, when we close our eyes in death, when we reopen them, we're with Jesus. I mean, that's what I believe. Anyway, so here I'm thinking, I've died. I open my eyes and Jesus is saying, Greetings. Do not be afraid. Yeah. I'm here. You know, he's not some bones in a grave. He's alive. Right. Are you saying that you, they were wondering if if they had somehow died or if they... No. No. If, if, I, if I died... Yes. And opened my eyes, now I can see Jesus and He's saying, Greetings. Yes. Oh, yes, like you're right. Yeah, so this is a foretaste of, of heaven, really. It is. It is, because death has been defeated. Yes. They had been following Jesus, and he had been killed for for being a rebel rouser. And everybody <clears throat> and those people potentially knew that these people were following them. So they had they had a target on their backs as well because they were related to him, right? And so it could be you know. So not not only is there a target on your back, but but now he's come back. Is that a bigger target? Right. I I wonder if that was. If that was sinking in yet, I mean, certainly that night they're in the upper room and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews because I think for that very reason. Um, but in this, I mean, just as with the angel, I don't know if they're thinking, uh-oh, they're after us. I think they're going, uh-oh, a dead man got raised. Like, I, I just think that uh, probably, but I, but you're right. I mean, there is all of that as well. There's this, uh, um, and he, he, was, he was in a sense worse than a rabble rouser. He was a blasphemer. And so, uh, in that religious culture, um, so yes, he was. He was. Uh, the crowds were after him, but but he was encouraging them to love. You know, so uh, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Um, they they weren't fighters. Yeah. Isn't that why the disciples, when they went to see the disciples, they were all locked into a room, weren't they, for for fear of? Uh, they were yes. In, they were already in fear that somebody's going to come after them. Well, and they, yes, because they also and we're gonna. One of the things we'll talk about after after the next paragraph is that that um, they would have been accused of stealing the body. So, all right, yes, John, last one. The military people there were feared because they had lost the body. And that yeah, was the right. yeah, that's right. And we're going to talk about that too. Yeah, the uh, military they'd fought, they'd somehow fallen down on the job. Uh, literally, actually, and then, um, um, and so, yeah, how their their lives are on the line for that. They don't just get fired, you know. They get they get burned like that. Um, so it says while they were going, the women um, uh, were going back to see the disciples, and Jesus had had you know told them, "Go tell my brothers." And while they're going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
Um, so the disciples, I mean, the women are going to tell the disciples, but then, of course, the, um, some of the guard went to the city and tell the chief priests. Interesting, they don't go to Pilate because they know that they're going to get in trouble. Right? They go to the chief priests, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, here's what we want you to tell them. Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. Now, how they thought they were going to do that, I do not know. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And of course, this day was was that it was Matthew when Matthew was writing. Yeah, in the sixties, sixties, seventies. So. Many of you have heard me tell uh, stories about my mentor, Frank Limehouse. And Frank uh, is, he's, there's, they broke the mold after good old Frank. Uh, and he, when he was in his uh, 30s, he was working in the family business, uh, which uh, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, was Limehouse's haberdashery. He was a haberdasher. And he married uh, this um, wonderful woman named Jane. Uh, and um, and Jane uh, and Frank had a child, and Frank didn't really, you know, she didn't really have anything to do with the church, and um, and he would consider himself an uh, agnostic at, at best, and and uh, but Jane had been a Christian, but Frank had really pulled Jane away. But they had uh, little Frank, and um, and Jane wanted to get Frank baptized, and she had grown up in the Episcopal Church, and so she went and met with uh, Reverend Snow. At, uh, at the Episcopal Church in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And, um, and Reverend Snow said, well, I will be happy to baptize little Frank, but I want to meet with big Frank and, um, and talk to him about this. And Frank said, no, nah, I'm, I'm, she called him up at, at the store. She said, Reverend Snow wants to meet you. And he suggested, he knows you like to play golf. He suggests that, that maybe you just play golf. And Frank said, no, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I, I'm not going to do that. And she and, and Jane said, look, you have, uh, I've, I've given you my life, I've given you everything, um, and you've taken me away from the church, and I've really not uh, fussed about that, but um, I'm asking you this, to play golf with a guy, and you're saying you're not going to do it, and I'm, I may not be home tonight. And, and he knew that she wasn't playing around. He said, set it up. And so... Uh, he set up, and Frank had played golf at Wofford uh, in college, and he said, um, he got there, he said, no, listen, we're, we're not going to turn the ball over, we're going to play the ball as it lies, you know, we're not taking a mulligan. He was just kind of going down, being a real hard ass about the, uh, excuse me, about the, uh, um, uh, about the rules, and he was, because he, he wasn't going to take any guff from this uh, preacher. Little did he know that Reverend Snow had won the North and South Carolina Pastors Golf uh, Tournament. <laughs> So they were uh, they were turning the um, they they were coming up on the ninth green at the Orangeburg Country Club and uh, they were all square and um, and Frank was ticked and uh, and Reverend Snow looked at him on the ninth green and said Frank Limehouse what is your problem with Christianity is it the resurrection Frank didn't know what to say and. They finished out the round, and Frank's a little fuzzy on who actually won that day. But um, the, uh, um, you know how you get 
the way that he describes it is, you know, you get a um, like an earworm, a song that just plays over and over in your head. What is it, Frank Limehouse? The re- is it the resurrection played in his? He could not get that question out of his mind for six months. And six months later, after the baptism, everything, they, he storms in the office of Reverend Snow and says, six months ago in the ninth green, you asked me, what is my problem, the resurrection? Reverend Snow looked at him and said, I don't remember that, but that's a good question. <laughs> and Frank said, of course it's the resurrection. If that happened, that changes everything. And somewhere in there, Frank gave his life to Christ. And, um, and then Frank got involved in reading and then in uh, acolyting and, and chalice-bearing and then <laughs> seminary. And, um, <laughs> and it's just an incredible story, uh, and, and he's an incredible guy. But um, the resurrection does actually change everything. Um, so I want to go through some, and, and you, may, you may know some uh, people in your family or people who just kind of flagged things about the resurrection that, that say that there's no way it could have happened. The, the principal one being that dead people don't rise, right? I mean, that's, that's, that would be the number one reason. And what I want to try to give you, I've only got about 15 minutes left, but I want to give you some, um, some hard and fast uh, evidence that suggests that, yes, we know that dead people don't rise, but the only logical conclusion um, is that Jesus rose from the dead which, in fact, changes everything, okay? So the first one is that people in that day were just more likely to believe superstitious things. I mean, they're, you know, sort of pre-scientific, and, um, and then it would, it, you know, it would just not have been very difficult to uh, convince people in, in that time that, that, uh, that Jesus had risen from, from the dead. So what that... M- that line of thinking must take into account is that Gentiles in that Mediterranean area, and by Mediterranean area, I basically mean all of it, you know, like from Spain to India. I mean, that just, you know, as far as I can tell from the scholars I've read, the Gentiles believe that um, the idea was to escape this life, that this life is a bad dirty, corrupt, defiled, and that the goal is to get out of this life and into the next. Some ethereal, spiritual realm, whatever that looks like. It certainly doesn't look like heaven like you and I think of it, but, um, but to shed the body. And so a bodily resurrection was in fact moving in the wrong direction. It was absurd. Why would you, especially someone who claimed to be God or connected to God in some way, who had had the success of healing all these people, why would that person want to come back? That doesn't make any sense from a Gentile perspective. So there was, that, that would have been uh, absurd. Jews, on the other hand, believed, many of them, not every, all of them, but many of them believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. The time was linear and there would be an end of time, and that, that in that time that we would all be resurrected. But a singular resurrection, while life went on, was preposterous. And so there really wasn't a category in the thought around resurrection 
to come up with this. Now, I'm not saying that humans aren't creative, but in, you have to also add in that for, among the Jews, for God to inhabit a human body was also blasphemous. So for God to inhabit this man and resurrect into a body was going the wrong direction and blasphemous and impossible because that's when because everybody's resurrection. That's when the resurrection will happen. And yet, overnight, it wasn't this gradual uh, thing over the course of decades where people began to, the idea began to catch on that Jesus had been resurrected. Literally overnight, the disciples began worshiping the resurrected Jesus as God. So all of these sort of cultural mindset things immediately shifted and word got out within days. Pentecost, you know, it was just, just days later, 50 days later. And so um, it, was, it was very, you know, it was very, very quick. And that the only, one, one would say that the only reasonable explanation for that uh, is that it was true. Another thing, that people said. So there's, there's people then believe superstitious things, uh, but you have to account for what people believed about those superstitious things. Number two, Jesus didn't actually die. Like he's, he swooned. That's, that's another thing that is, is often said. Now, I should say that both, of, I want to recommend two, if you're interested in understanding about these, these are two really good resources. You probably heard this very, both are popular level. Um, uh, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I think he also has one that's actually called The Case for the Resurrection. Uh, it's very, it's, I probably came out in the early 90s. But it's, um, he was a journalist who set out to prove that Jesus, uh, that Christianity was false and, and gave his life to Christ because he came to the conclusion. The other one, this is Timothy Keller, who, as you know, is one of my favorites, and it's called The Reason for God. He has one that came out after this, but actually comes in thought before this. Um, but this is really uh, this is really answering skeptics, or maybe agnostics. The other one is sort of for atheists. Um, but this this has some really good uh, resources uh, about um, the resurrection and, and all sorts of different doubts about Christianity. But uh, it's called the Reason for God: Belief in an Age of Skepticism by Tim Keller. So if you're interested, these are really good really good references. Um, so a lot of um, Theories about uh, called the the swoon theory that uh, that they were wrong that, that he just passed out and they thought he was dead and they couldn't get him awake. Um, what we need to understand is that that though the um, the, the scriptures kind of gloss over is that Jesus was scourged and then he was crucified. The scourging uh, was what we make such a big deal of what Mel Gibson made such a big deal of in The Passion of the Christ. This is the cat of nine tails. It has bone and glass uh, in the leather, and they throw it like a baseball and uh, across the back and um, for 39 times, and, and it um, rips out not just across the skin but into the bone and sometimes even into the entrails and the organs, and, um, and it just become a bloody pulp, and even that itself they say 39 times because 40 would kill a man, but actually lots of people didn't survive uh, the 39. And, um, and so you're just beaten to a, an, an ugly mess. Uh, n- not to mention the fact that he had already been punched and, and kicked and, and, um, by the 
by the high priest. He was uh, slept in the on the rock uh, in the in the cistern, basically in the holding cell, and then was punched again after this um, by the guards. Had to carry his cross, um, whether it was the whole cross or probably just the cross beam, and. Um, and so the, the uh, exhaustion, the, the level of exhaustion that he would have been at uh, when they nailed him uh, to the cross was in fact, and they, found, they have found crosses um, and skeletons with, with nails through their feet uh, with the olive wood still a little bit on the nail. So, I mean, there people who say, well, he, they actually didn't nail him, they just tied him. Well, they did tie him. But they also nailed them. I mean, they, was, they would use different ones and uh, different techniques. But for, with the Passover coming and needing to get the bodies off the crosses before the Sabbath, they would have nailed, likely they would have nailed the, the, them to the cross. The Romans were experts at killing people. Right? That was their deal. And so it is conceivable that these um, disciples who had not been to medical school um, could uh, could mistake it, but it is very unlikely that the Romans would have mistaken it. And in fact, to get to kill, you know, you know that uh, crucifixion is um, the death is is. I mean, you're exposed and you're humiliated and all this, but the death actually comes from asphyxiation because you're you're you have to pull yourself up across the ro- the nails. To, to get a breath, and then you come back down, you can't breathe, and then you got to push up, you know, you gotta, it's just awful, and finally you don't have the strength anymore, and you suffocate. And the reason they would break their legs is to hurry that process up, because they couldn't push up off their legs anymore, and so um, they would die of asphyxiation within minutes. And, um, but they didn't need to break his legs, because he was already dead. But just to make sure, remember what they did, they, they pierced his side with a spear. Now, what would have what happened when I'm, you know, again, I'm not a medical doctor either, but what I read about is what I'm told and uh, happens. In fact, I'm going to read it from from this account. This is a uh, this is a PhD, not a medical doctor. Um, so this doctor, this PhD, he's saying that his name is uh, Methor- Doctor Methorel, that it's the uh, it can't it could not have been faked. Um, as a person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. And in fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of his death, which is to say, uh, when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit, then he died of a cardiac arrest. Even before he died, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a sustained rapid, this is from the beating and the scourging and, and the trauma of carrying uh, the cross, would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart. The fluid is called pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called pleural effusion. That is significant because of what happened when the Roman soldier came around being fair, and being fairly certain that Jesus was dead confirmed it by thrusting a spear into his right side. It was probably his right side, it's not certain, 
but from the description, it was probably the right side between the ribs. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart, so when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, clear fluid, the pericardial effusion, the pleural effusion, came out. And this would have been have the appearance of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitnesses, eyewitness John described in his gospel. And John would have had no idea why uh, he saw both blood and clear fluid. Um, that's not um, what an untrained person like him would have anticipated. Yet John's description is consistent with what modern medicine would have expected to happen. Which I think is really remarkable. This doesn't yet answer. So let's just say, let's, let's, let's say there's no way he wasn't dead. But let's just say for, for a, um, let's just say for, an, for a minute, okay, even that, just somehow he was sustained. They did just got the lung, his lung deflated, but his heart was still intact or something like that. He's passed out from all this terrible beating, but he's not dead, and they put him in the tomb. It just doesn't answer how a man in that condition would revive without water or nutrition, then have the strength to move the stone and the stealth to sneak past the Roman guards. A man in his condition could not have walked the road to Emmaus because his feet would have still been shattered. A certainly, and certainly, a man in his condition could not have inspired countless others to proclaim him the Lord of life and look forward to a resurrection body like his. Because he would have been a bloody pulp. So the fact that they are proclaiming, the fact that the resurrection accounts have him meeting them with health, with vibrancy, with, um, with, um, with sustain, he's able to walk with these um, disciples on the road, that is, um, that, that is suggestive that he was resurrected, in fact, not, um, and not just merely swooned. Because if we're just going on scientific evidence, I mean, of course, scientifically, people don't rise from the dead, but neither do they heal that quickly. Number three, Jesus' body was just stolen. As we said, the Roman soldiers wouldn't let that happen because their life is on the line. But let's say, just for instance, that they, the disciples snuck him out and the, um, and the Roman soldiers never saw how, maybe there's a back entrance into the, you know, I don't know, like, you know, the bat cave or something. The disciples paid the guards off first. The disciples paid the guards off first and, you know, that's, you know, 11 of the 12, well, 10 of the 11, and then St. Paul. So 11 of the 12, including St. Paul, but not including Judas, were martyred. And they weren't all rounded up and martyred together, as if there's some sort of um, pressure for them. Nobody gives in, right, while we're all being burned together at the stake. They were martyred in, across decades, across continents, because they went to go tell people that Jesus was resurrected and that He was the Lord of life. And he was, they were martyred. And for me personally, 
I find it far more difficult to believe that these men would die, die for a lie independently than that God would raise Jesus from the dead. Somebody's giving in. Somebody's saying, okay, for crying out loud, we made it up. They all died because it was true. So, then there's a few other things like they got the, they just got the wrong tomb. Like they just the, it was dark, you know. They just they just went to the wrong tomb. Which I mean, how do you solve that? Go to the right, Go to the right tomb for crying out loud, you silly ladies. Okay, so they didn't have that. But here's another one. Oh, oh, there it is. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. This is this is really. Um, I think it's important as well. Paul says, I de- he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, which is, of course, Peter, and then to the twelve, then, listen, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. How could Paul make that public claim? Travel was relatively easy. they get on a boat, they could go ask him. They, 500 people saw Jesus. Now, we don't have an account of Jesus appearing to 500 people. We do know that he appeared to, you know, had so many things that, you know, John says if if I were to write them all down, the world wouldn't be filled with the you know couldn't be filled with all those books. So, um, it was it was um, uh, there's this public claim that you can just go ask them. They saw him for themselves. They weren't the inner circle. They they saw Jesus. Well, like when Paul was in front of the judges when he said, you know, these things weren't done in secret; they were done wide open. Right. Right. So, I think, again, there is way more reason to believe that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead than that they would die for a lie, that he just swooned, that, he, um, uh, that they just believe superstitious things and they don't know enough to know what dead is. Like, those things don't make any sense to me. And all the miracles make sense for a resurrected Savior. If, G- if Jesus can be raised from the dead... And he can take five loaves and two fish and make it more than enough for five thousand people. If he can raise the, if he can be raised from the dead, he can heal the sick and the lame and and uh, walk on water and, and all that stuff clicks into place if you have a resurrected Savior. That he is God incarnate. And so I just as we go through the week, as we anticipate the resurrection, uh, but don't don't skip it. Don't don't skip the Monday Thursday. Don't skip Good Friday. Go into those uh, hard, dark places um, and remember why Good Friday is good. It is because it's, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? I mean, it's, it's our, our sins were paid for there. Our eternal life is sealed uh, in the resurrection. So just something to hold on to and to uh, contemplate. We've got some questions, and we've got to go to church. So, um, so George, you haven't spoken yet. Go ahead. Just a side comment. And... Verse 8, there is an an important acknowledgement of the role of women when the women at the tomb run to tell the disciples. 
And in the original Greek, the word used is the base of apostle. They become the first apostles that go and tell of the risen Christ. Yes. Just an interesting side. Yes. Religions or faiths that do not allow women in the pulpit. Yet, women were the first ones to told to go out. Yep. But my point is, Jesus being resurrected as Savior, resurrected Savior, solidifies the fact that he promised he's to prepare a place for us. That's right. I mean, it also, yeah, so that seals all the things he said, I will leave, I will never leave you or forsake you. How is that? Because he's resurrected. You know, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you because he's resurrected. So, yes. So there, all his promises uh, can only be fulfilled. Last one, Doc. tells us that same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body. So it's a, the, the spirit confir- confirms everything the word says. And by the spirit we know. Yes, indeed. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Not a similar one. Same one. Nope, that's right. Not a similar one. The same one. That's right. Go to church. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.